This week's episode is brought to you by The Jungle Book, coming to Blu-ray and DVD on August 30th, 2016. How is it? I don't know! I didn't see it, but I hear it's pretty good, so I guess we'll find out. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I'm really excited to take a a little exotic trip this week. You're going to San Diego? No, but close. I'm going south of the border. Ooh, we've got one of those in between North and South Carolina. No, no, no. no, South of the border? No, no, George. Not not that place. I don't don't need a kitschy... uh, Ashtray or fire. Well, actually, I can salt and fire. pepper shaker, maybe. Oh, well, salt and pepper shaker, I could probably use. I don't have maybe. any of those in the house, so maybe. Okay, well, maybe. You, do you have any of those on your desk right now? I don't actually. See, do you? What if somebody comes over and needs some salt and pepper? That's just a fair point. That happens quite a lot at work. More but than you. I'm like assume. I'm like three feet away from salt and pepper in the kitchen right now. So. Oh, so I guess it doesn't really matter yeah, for you. That's, that's moot. It's a moot point. It's a moot point, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, which which is a new Pokemon I caught today? It's a moot point. Gotta move them all. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay, let's go into the history segment. It's time for Disney History! So, we've talked a little bit about Walt's trip south of the border in the past, but mostly about the films that came out of it. Now, we're gonna take a pretty in depth look at the trip overall and relate it to the Walt Disney Company overall. So let's take a trip south of the border with Walt Disney. No, 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 not the tacky roadside attraction that's near me, as Jeff pointed out earlier. Mm -hmm. We are talking about Walt and El Grupo, or as I like to call it, how the Good Neighbor program changed the Walt Disney Company and also, you know, the world. That should be the official title. I think that's the way to go. That's too much to say. Mm, I mean, government, it's fine. Uh, That's true. So a little background on it. In the 1930s, Nelson Rockefeller, uh, the son of John D. Rockefeller Jr., and grandson of John D. Rockefeller Sr., uh, the founder of Standard Oil, he visited the continent of South America many times. And towards the end of the decade, he discovered that the Axis powers were already trying to take control of Europe, and they'd been working diligently to increase their presence in South America. The United States was still a few years removed from officially entering World War II, but Rockefeller knew that something had to be done to quell the increasing Nazi sympathy that was in our neighbor to the south. And he was a private citizen at the time, and he traveled to Washington and urged something to be done. His plea resulted in the creation of a new government post, and in 1940 he was anointed the coordinator of commercial and cultural relations between the American republics. Yeah, you weren't kidding. The government re- yeah, Told really you. likes Perfect. words. Uh, it was soon shortened to CIAA, or the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs. 
So perpetuating a good neighbor program that had unofficially already existed, Rockefeller called upon the help of Hollywood producers Francis Alstock and John Hay Whitney to enlist fellow filmmakers in the creation of Latin America-friendly films and themes. They reached out to several studios and in the late 1940 uh, contacted Roy Disney. And Roy, in turn, drafted a memo to Walt, and in it he apprised his younger brother of Rockefeller's intention and Whitney's request to insert some, quote, South American atmosphere, end quote, in some of their general short subjects. Roy thought that maybe two or three pictures of such nature could be whipped up, but Walt, as always, thought bigger, providing the point that, uh, proving the point that when you wanted Walt to do something, you always go to Roy. Exactly. So Walt was actually knee-deep in work at the time, even after enjoying a string of successes. But it wasn't long before the Disney artists were building the foundation for an entire series of Latin American pictures to be produced in cooperation with the CIAA. The project became increasingly more ambitious in scope, uh, until the point where it was decided that Walt himself would have to visit South America with several of his artists. That notion had been put before him early on in Disney's requested involvement, as it was thought it would be beneficial to the cause if he embarked on a, a sort of goodwill tour to help stem the growth of, of growing sympathy for German and Italian interests. So, essentially, in the simplest terms, the U.S. government wanted Walt to go down to South America to defeat the Nazis. I mean, I would totally watch that movie. Or that sitcom. I don't care. Exactly. Make it happen. Um, however, it was a notion that Walt immediately rejected. And he said, a goodwill tour? I'm no good at that. Walt was not interested in going down there just to shake hands. But when it was suggested that he instead visit the continent to obtain material for his films, that was an idea he could get behind. So would this be like a Netflix series, near series, be sort of like a cross between um, House of Cards, maybe, and um, Orange is the New Black? Could we put Walt in there somehow? I just think you did the elevator pitch, and we should work on this, but we'll we'll, we'll have to talk about it later. Okay, okay. Forget All you right. forget you heard that, guys. Yeah, yeah, you didn't hear that. So Okay, so uh, going back to our story, uh, Bank of America wasn't as quick to back the idea as Walt was. So in 1941, the Disney studio was already roughly $3.5 million in debt to them. And the bank expressed concern over these South American films serving, you know, largely as propaganda and, and not being potential moneymakers. And that's when the U.S. government stepped up, and rightfully so. Whitney advised Walt that the government would underwrite the tour expenses up to $70,000 with a guaranteed $50,000 apiece for four to five films, you know, based on the trip with the provision that the money be returned if the films produced a profit upon release. Now, in regards to the money, I'm going to come back to that at the end of this. So, by the summer of 1941, the Good Neighbor program was already in trouble. Several of the participants botched attempts at goodwill with their complete lack of knowledge in regards to the various cultures of South America. And one such example was a Universal Pictures film entitled Argentine Nights, which immediately offended the audience as it was meant to uh, integrate itself with. And after a viewing of the film, complete with a widely inaccurate portrayal of our Argent, uh, excuse me, Argentina and its culture, uh, riot police had to be called to the movie theater to subdue the enraged audience. So, in addition to this, celebrities who, unlike Walt, jumped at the chance to be sent on a goodwill tour, uh, expected to, expecting to be treated like royalty, soon found out that the budgets for these little excursions weren't quite as extravagant as they expected. South America had grown awfully unimpressed with this program of ours. In fact, at one point, Brazil's foreign minister, Oswaldo Arenha, Arenha hmm, even had a little message for us. Quote, the next goodwill mission that arrives in Rio, Brazil, will declare war on the United States. 
End quote. So yeah, not working out too well for them. <laughs> so yet another obstacle standing in Walt's way was the strike at a studio by the newly formed Cartoonist Union. So not only would Walt have to leave the hemisphere during one of the worst times in his studio's history, but some third-party observers went so far as to declare that Walt's labor dispute would further jeopardize the Good Neighbor program that was not doing so hot. And it was pointed out that labor is international, and South America would not look favorably upon a man who wouldn't deal with labor. Furthermore, sending Walt would be a serious mistake, they said. Jeez. So I guess at this point, Walt had just better give up, right? Of course not. So what did he do, George? <laughs> well, by July 23rd, 1941, Walt finished personally selecting who would be joining him on the tour. So let's go through them now. First up was Lee Blair, and by the time the trip was about to begin, Lee was an accomplished watercolor painter who had lent his talents to the groundbreaking films Pinocchio and Fantasia. He had a distinct talent of capturing at-the-moment scenes, and, and not just with paint. Lee's ability to operate a 16mm film camera would also prove quite useful to the group as he became one of the three camera operators who would record the group's activities while on tour. So next up was Mary Blair, who was the wife of Lee Blair. Now, Mary was herself an amazing artist, as we all know, before she even came to the Walt Disney Studios. Uh, she joined the studios in 1940, where she worked on several different projects. But she actually resigned from Disney in June of 1941 to focus on her own heart, her own art. Um, but when she found out Lee was heading to South America, she went straight to Walt Disney himself and asked to be rehired and be allowed to join them for the trip. And Walt, of course, agreed, and it was just one of his many good decisions. So Jim Bodero, or I guess Bodrero, joined Disney at the suggestion of his friend, composer Leopold Stokowski. He was one of the easier choices for Walt in regards to the South America trip. Bodrero had met and formed a friendship with uh, the visiting Argentine polo team when the Olympics were held in Los Angeles in 1932. Just prior to starting for Disney, he had published a children's book titled Bomba, about a little Mexican donkey. The guy definitely loved Latin American culture. He also had a particular talent for drawing horses and donkeys. Bill Cottrell began working for the Walt Disney Studios in 1929. Uh, he started as a camera operator and soon moved into the story department. And after producing several ideas for shorts, Cottrell directed the Wicked Witch and Evil Queen sequences in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and used his story talents to contribute to Pinocchio. In 1938, he actually married uh, Lillian Disney's sister, Hazel. Boy, that's the ultimate brown nosing, I it think. It is. Yeah. So Jack Cutting was an animator who worked on over a dozen Disney shorts by 1941. And in 1939, he directed The Ugly Duckling, which took home the Academy Award for Best Short Subject in cartoons. A year before the South America trip, Cutting had already traveled there, assigned to oversee the Spanish soundtrack for Pinocchio in Buenos Aires. And one of the top Disney animators in the 30s, Norm Ferguson, had a very impressive resume by the time the El Grupo trip came around. Fergie, as he was affectionately called, was appointed super supervisor of the South American tour by Walt himself. I loved his work with the brown-eyed peas. Me too. Definitely. So before Disney, Larry Landsberg was working in the movie business as a stunt artist. And after he fell off a horse and severely broke his leg, he hung up his stunt work and joined Disney in 1938 as a traffic boy. He later went on to say, quote, It was the best break I ever had because it put me behind the camera. End quote. He ended up in the editing department and in May of 1941 submitted a South American storyline and sketches to help with Disney's participation in the Good Neighbor program. 
Janet Martin was the wife of Larry Landsberg and worked in publicity, and she helped the group maintain a relationship with the press in South America and coordinated all written and photographic documentation of the trip. Jack Miller, <clears throat> excuse me, Jack Miller was another story man who excelled at creating story sketches. He was brought along to not only help with developing stories, but creating characters as well. John Rose was, an, was another of the few non-artists to make the trip. He actually performed administrative duties for the studio and served as the business manager for El Grupo. And in addition to managing the group's expenses, he had to create a schedule that would allow the group to get the maximum use out of their time while they were there. And unfortunately for Rose, their schedule not only changed daily, but sometimes every hour, completely depending on what Walt felt like doing at the time. So it was probably quite the job. Yeah, and anyone uh, ever heard of this Herb Ryman guy? Never. Eh? Eh? Anyway, yeah. So uh, Ryman graduated from uh, the Chicago Art Institute with honors before moving to Hollywood in 1932. He worked as a storyboard illustrator at Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, and in 1938 met Walt Disney for the first time at a gallery exhibit of his work. Walt was so impressed with Ryman's work, he invited him to join the Walt Disney Studio. Ted Sears began his career with Disney in 1931. Uh, he was an animator, but Walt wanted him as a story man, and Sears would eventually become the first head of the story department. One of the strongest story men in the entire studio, Sears' selection by Walt was another easy choice. And while on the trip, his prolific story ideas were utilized time and time again. The third and final, quote, story man of the group, Webb Smith was considered one of the studio's best gag men. His penchant for silly yet witty gags would prove invaluable in making sure that intelligent humor would be a part of the products and the tour uh, that the tour would produce. Uh, thanks to a referral from fellow Chouinard alum, Frank Thomas joined the Disney studio on September 24, 1934. And while several artists made the trip, Thomas was the only one in the group who was a member of the animation staff. And while Walt admired his work, Thomas was originally selected for the trip so he wouldn't be drafted by the U.S. military. And after the age requirements were altered and Thomas was no longer in danger of being selected, Walt advised Thomas that he no longer had to come along. And Thomas replied, quote, Have to go? I was looking forward to it. So and then he proceeded to convince Walt to let him come along anyway. And Charles uh, Walcott was the musical talent of the group. He joined Disney in 1938 as an arranger, but it wasn't long before he's promoted to musical director. While on the trip, he was responsible for recording and cataloging all the various songs and musical traditions that the group would encounter, and there were more than a few. And rounding out the group were the other three folks. Uh, they were Bill Cottrell's wife, Hazel, uh, Walt Disney's wife, Lillian, and of course, Walt Disney himself, who incidentally was the third man of the three who acted as cameraman for the 16mm camera that documented pretty much the entire trip. So, come back next week for our second part of this segment, where we talk about the films that they made after the trip. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. So anyone who's listened to any bit of Communicore Weekly knows that we are both huge Pete, Pete's Dragons fans. You know, the 1977 film is a classic. We've dedicated a lot of time on Communicore Weekly discussing Passamoquoddy and the characters of the film. So the new film is being released this summer, and I'm not sure what to think about it. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, we had a few books show up, including a, a junior novelization, which I'll have to wait till after the movie, a picture book, which actually is kind of cute and has a neat tie into it, and another book 
that seems like it takes place before the new movie, I think. Uh, yeah. So it's called The Lost Years, and it chronicles how Pete gets lost and how he meets Elliot to begin with. And it even gives a bit of Elliot's backstory, all relating to the new film. And, I mean, it starts innocently enough, but to me at least, it got pretty dark pretty quickly. Yeah, it, it, as I mentioned, well, I, I came into the book thinking it was related to the 77 film, but apparently it's it's not. And I get the feeling that it's sort of a, the new movie's a reboot of sorts. I've really tried to stay away from it because I wanted to be surprised. Yeah. But, but the book does get pretty dark, which surprised me, especially because this is for tweens, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, so we, we meet Pete, and he is on a family vacation with his parents, and they are heading north. Uh, obviously, in the New England area, sort of the same place as Passamaquoddy. And I got the feeling that Pete was about four or five years old, but he was pretty precocious. And, you know, I, I can't imagine... Basically, what happens to him in the first couple of chapters of the book, I can't imagine going through that myself. It's terrible. Yeah, even even as an adult, I don't know if I could handle some of that, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, I know there's a level of suspending belief when dealing <laughs> with a film in a book about a dragon, yeah. but I just had a hard time believing Pete would be left alone in the woods for so, so, so long. Um, and granted, when he is, he meets up with Elliot, and though the two can't really speak to each other at first, they don't know each other's language, they form a bond. And this book shows how the two of them relate to each other and become best friends. Yeah, and, and the book itself, t- to me, was very jumbly, we'll use that word, and very disconcerting. Uh, the chapters switch from one perspective to the other. One is sort of from Pete's perspective, the other one's from Elliot. And, you know, I did th- thought that that made the book more interesting, uh, especially the chapters from Elliot's perspective. Mm-hmm. I thought they were almost comedic. I really enjoyed those. But I still spent the whole time trying to connect it to the film, uh, which was my problem. And I just couldn't enjoy the book as much as I wanted to. But there might be other reasons. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I agree. I mean, seeing things from Elliot's perspective was definitely entertaining, even if it was still one-dimensional of sorts. But the constant shift back and forth was definitely jarring at times. And on top of that... I mean, this book was almost 200 pages, but there was no real conflict. Mm. Like, Pete never tries to get home, and Elliot really doesn't try to help him get home. They both are content to live in the woods in their secret spot and let the world just pass them by. Yeah, and and that's a big issue. I'm assuming that there would have been search and rescue teams for Pete or the family or anybody else. But, you know, another part of the book that was weird to me, dealt with the time jumps. And we're not talking about time travel. Which would have been amazing. That would have been awesome. That would have been a twist. But the the story jumps ahead a few years. The the story's broken into seasons, like summer, winter, fall. And each season is a jump of a year or two or three, possibly. And I never really got a good gauge of what his age was. Yeah, yeah. So for reference, and this isn't true, like, I don't remember which one it started with. I think George just said it was summer or whatever we'll just say the first chapter is spring who knows yeah so it's spring and pete is five and then the next chapter is summer where he's like six or seven and then the Mm -hmm. next chapter he's eight or nine it's just really super confusing and even though the book is called the lost years we really have no frame of reference for what what went on during those intervening year times we're not seeing aside from the two of them just avoiding the outside world yeah, see, I thought Pete was, like, almost 12 by the end of the book. He may be. <laughs> At this point, I'm like, okay, we're, we're 10 years in the future now. What happened? He's an adult. He's got a job. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they do math as well as we do at this point. Um, I, I do think that The Lost Years does have an audience, but, like, a few books that we've reviewed were not really the target market for it. And, you, you know, what Jeff mentions is there really isn't a 
antagonist or anything bad that really happened, so I'm not sure why the story exists. Yeah, yeah. Except to show what Pete and Elliot did apparently during these lost years. I mean, yes. I don't know. For I mean, for us, I think at least you know our hearts of of coldness. Um, (laughs) If you're like us, just stick to the original film and maybe give this book a pass, but maybe let your kids read it. I don't know. Yeah, Yeah. So yeah, this week's book is the Pete's Dragon tie-in called The Lost Years. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is located in Hong Kong Disneyland, and it reads Art Henderson, Ed Erlandson, sorry, Ed, uh, David Ricky, Chris Barker, Insiders and Outsiders Design and Build Company. So Art Henderson was an Imagineer at Imagine... Imagine... Oh, jeez. Imagine nerding. George, look what you've done to me. At Imagineering... <laughs> he was the, an engineer at engineer Imagineering. At Imagineering. There we go. Yeah, that's okay. I'll, I'll take it for a win, though. Fair enough. Edward Ed Erlandson is the Director of Architecture and um, Engineering at the Walt Disney Company. Uh, David Brickey is a Director of Interior Design at the Walt Disney Company. And Christopher N. Barker is the Director of Graphic Design at the Walt Disney Company. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. (laughs) In Shanghai Disneyland, the five-legged goats had started to roll in from cadets who have been there. And we're jealous, I'm not going to lie. So for this week's goat, we're going to look at uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Battle for the Sunken Treasure, which has a great bunch of goats in the queue. So while you're waiting for the attraction, much like you do at Disneyland, at Walt Disney World, you'll pass through a bunch of different places, but this time you also pass through a stable. And located on the wall of the stable are all these horseshoes nailed to boards that feature nods to famous Disney horses. And the horses are plentiful. There's a ton of them. There is Jack and Gus, uh, the mice from Cinderella that turn into horses, uh, Bullseye from Toy Story, Maximus from Tangled, Major from Cinderella, uh, Achilles from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, Fru-Fru from The Aristocats, Khan from Mulan, Horse Horse Collar from the original Disney shorts, uh, Philippe from Beauty and the Beast, Angus from Brave, Abu from when he was turned into a horse for like four seconds in Aladdin, I guess, um, Captain from 101 Dalmatians, and Old Dobbin, who used to pull trolleys on Main Street at Disneyland. There is a cornucopia of horse hooves in Shanghai Disneyland. That is impressive that you got that last sentence out. I know, I know. It, it just wasn't went... even in the script. No, it wasn't. It just flowed beautifully. That's what we called ad-libbing, guys. Ooh, good. We're it's really good at that. Ad-libbing. I've got a six-pack. Oh, no, that's Wait, different. what? My ads. Oh, oh, ad- okay. Oh, got no, it, got never it. mind. Okay, got it. What I was going to go with was a cornucopia is how we draw the prize every week, but okay. then I got well, I mean, that would have worked better, obviously. Thing. It probably would have been better, so... A little more true, but whatever. Exactly. So we are at the point of the show where we... Tell you who is the winner for this week's year of a million or so limited time cadets. Hooray! Prize. So Two, I said the word prize too many times in there. I think that's I okay. That. Prizes are always fun to have. Exactly. Exactly. So this week's winner is Sarah J from Hamilton, Ohio. Hooray, Sarah! And that's where I was born. What? That's in Hamilton, Ohio. Conspiracy. Yes, Illuminati it. confirmed. Oh my gosh, that's crazy. They're like, there's a Disney Illuminati. I doubt it. Mm, probably. Maybe. Maybe. Okay, so <laughs> Can't talk in, about it. Can't talk about yeah. it. In case this is the first time you've ever listened to Communicore Weekly, you two can sign up. We've got, what, like 24 left? 23? Uh, 20, 24 now. Yes, 24. 24. This is from, so, uh, yeah, 24. Yep. So email 
your name, address, and birthday. We need your name and address to communicoreweekly at gmail.com, and we'll add you to the ever-growing and ever-popular list of cadets that want to win a prize. Mm-hmm. Yay! Okay, guys, well, thank you so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. However you listen to the show, whether on YouTube or iTunes, leave us a reading or a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and uh, as I mentioned earlier, you can always email us at communicorweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or just tell us how much you love us. And you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicorweekly. And follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagine Nerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. And visit CommunicoreWeekly.com to get some awesome t-shirts. Because they're still cool. They are still very cool. Yes, they are. And you can still get your official cadet membership card by sending a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And we just have a few left, so act <gasps> now because I'm not ordering any more. Ooh. I just wanted to put that in because I feel like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Fair enough. I like it. There we go. And you can always visit Communicore Weekly. Dot, no, you can visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>